Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and I'm joined today by my, by my guest co-host, Dr. John Barlow, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. John, how you doing? Great. Life is good in Milan. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the Mayo Clinic, or the institutions of any of our guests. So we have the supreme good fortune to currently be in the presence of Dr. Alex Castagna in uh, Milan at Humanitas University. We've spent the last two days with him in clinic and in the operating room, which has been an incredible experience. He's been an incredibly gracious host, inviting us into his life for two days. So we really appreciate the opportunity, Dr. Castagna. Alex, thank you so much for joining us uh, for as a, as a special guest on our Traveling Fellowship podcast. Yeah, thank you for this introduction, Pete. Uh, I should say thank you because, you know, I'm always learning from people asking me questions. If you don't have anyone behind you when you operate and no questions, you become like a little monkey doing your surgery. But if somebody is asking you something, you need to give an answer. And it keeps your mind alive. So thank you for being here because you are stimulating also my brain. Well, we're, it's, we've, been, we've been fortunate to be in your presence. Now tell me, you know, you've told us a little bit about how you came to learn about arthroscopy here in Milan. Tell us a little bit of the history. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a long history. I will make it short. Well, first of all, when I started, I'm a senior man, happily, and I'm healthy and, and so on, but I'm a senior man. So when I started to approach the shoulder, the original cause of it was my ignorance about the shoulder and my curiosity. I didn't know anything about the shoulder, or very little, let's say, uh, because at that time, I'm speaking about the 80s, 1980s, when I do, did my residence, residency, um, the shoulder was a little forgotten shoulder, uh, joint, uh, knee, hip, whatever, but shoulder was also. When I finished my residency and I was seeing some very few brave patients, brave enough to come and see me, trusted me, um, when I was visiting shoulders, I was not able to make a proper diagnosis. After 10 of those or so, I said, well, Alex, you, you need to, to go a little deeper into it. And by chance, it was, you know, the events in your life. Once I was walking in a big medical um, bookstore near the University of Milan, and just by chance, I saw in a corner with a little dust on it, the, the book of Dr. De Palma, 1960 or so. And I, I took this in my hand, just looking at this for curiosity, and then the guy working in the store said, well, it comes with 50% discount because probably nobody wanted it. So I bought it <laughs> and I started to read this after hours. And at the end, like reading a romance book, I said, well, shoulder, uh, there is a world, a galaxy of things behind it. And so I was intrigued by that. At that time, I was not very busy, a young boy. So I asked the director of my university, oh, why you don't write a presentation letter? To just to, to go and visit some shoulder surgeon in the United States. I say, oh, I'm very happy to send you away. So he did. And I took the addresses from the literature, reading arthroscopy. I, I took the names and the address of people that were publishing on, on shoulder surgery. Only one replied me, and it was Steve Snyder. So I said, well, these are the rules. You can come, blah, 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 blah. And for next year, you eventually may come. Say, well, I accept. So I prepared all the paperwork, blah, 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 blah. And then I moved to Los Angeles, not exactly on the beach. It was in <laughs> San Fernando Valley, 
Van Nuys in the middle of nothing almost, but very good if you want to train because it's like being in Rochester, John. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> nothing else to do. Nothing yeah. else to do. So, uh, and I did my experience with Steve, a wonderful man, now one of my best friends and not only a mentor, but a friend. And when I came back from this experience and came back to Italy, in a world of blind people about shoulder, I had a little tiny half eye. It was already something. Since then, it is like a snowball effect. You know? I was growing and growing and growing. And finally, Professor Mario Randelli, one, uh, well, let's say the Italian charlinier, I can define him, the Italian charlinier, once he told me in a congress, say, hey, Alex, I don't know any arthroscopy. Why you don't come to work with me? Oh, it's great honor, Professor Landelli. So I moved to to him here, and he was teaching me about open shoulder surgery. Then, when he retired, he indicated me like his hair. It was about twenty years ago. And then, story much more recent. But the origin is curiosity, and the knowledge that I didn't know. That's great. One of the things that I I think strikes me is you really brought arthroscopy, shoulder arthroscopy, when it was a burgeoning field growing in the United States and you brought it to Europe. And I'm certain that there were some battles that you fought about arthroscopy versus open surgery. And one of the things that's always interesting to us, we assume arthroscopy was a given, but at the time, I think there were people who doubted its role. How did you know when to persist, what to keep pushing on, and how did you know that this was going to be the future in the way that we fixed rotator cuffs? Well, 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 John, this is totally true. When I came back after the early experiences and I started presenting my papers in the meetings and so on and so on, they were little laughing at me and even trying to put me in the corner mm-hmm. and saying, you know, you're, you're crazy and so on and so on. But the point is that if you do something honestly, with knowledge, and you are not cheating at the end even their bad question they were coming back to them like a boomerang because i was really prepared at that time i was very passionate and studying a lot and doing my my job the best i could so at the end even if i was attacked at the beginning it ended up and they the the community decided well it's better to have him uh, on board Mm -hmm. so after a few years Things changed, and and it. But at the beginning, it was rough. But like everyone else in the U.S., remember the the tool of the devil. Mm-hmm. It was the scope, and so uh, I mean, we need to fight. Remember, this is a, an interesting story, and you know, Röntgen he discovered X-rays, right? Mm-hmm. When he did his first uh, presentation somewhere in Germany, he was blamed like a crazy man with these X-rays, and then this was changing our job. Mm-hmm. Or, or Paul Gramont with the reverse shoulder mm-hmm. arthroplasty. He was blamed by his own uh, colleagues in France. Are you crazy to do something like that? It, and it was a, a game changer. So, I mean, we should fight for something we believe in, we trust in, but what we need to do is to do it honestly. Mm. I think one of the major contributions you've made during that period of time is you've trained pretty much all of the luminaries that we currently take as experts in Europe in the ways of arthroscopy. Another major contribution you've made, at least in my view, is about the biology of the rotator cuff. And that, you know, some of those contributions include understanding inflammation within the bursa and its contribution to pain. You've talked to us a lot about metallic proteases and their tissue inhibitors. We've just seen a rotator cuff repair that's mm-hmm. been done in a very biologic way with the addition of stem cells, 
with your device for transosseous tunnels so that there's no interposed foreign material at the site of the repair. Tell us your current your current thinking. How does that how does that how does that change your approach? The research you've done. Very much, very much. Uh, that, that's a great question. Of course, it is a long trip, and it is not ended for even for you and for maybe a few generation more. Uh, we are orthopedic surgeons, and we are famous to be like little carpenters, just thinking about the mechanical <laughs> things. We like screws, plates, strong sutures, and so on. And we believe that strength is the only point. It is not true in nature. The, the strongest strength in nature is biology. Mm. So we repair torn or broken or whatever tissue that are in troubles, but we cannot simply put some stitches or some screws or some tools if nature is not helping that. It took me a long time to understand. But if you think about rotator cuff, when you look at the literature, you see that the average of the failure is at least from 24, 30% up to 94. You remember Lisa mm. Gallas and Kenny Yamaguchi paper. So it's very common that we have a mechanical failure. So of course the issue is somewhere else. Mm. This is what again curiosity that was stimulating my brain. I'm not a good biologist. Thank you, Pete, for stating this. But I like thinking, and then I have a team around me that can support me from this point of view. So I started thinking about it, and many years ago, probably 20 or more, I did these studies about the metalloproteinases, the enzyme, the inhibitors, and blah, 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 all this important stuff. And now they are very clear to us that the tendon uh, is healing not only because we have a strong suture, but for also other reasons that only partially we know. And we are fighting for that with many possible options. So far, we don't have a solution. But biology became one of my focus treating the rotator cuff. You were in my office yesterday, and you noticed that I selected very carefully the patient to treat. I mean, the smoker, 70 years old, low compliant with the torn rotator cuff is conservative treatment mm -hmm. because failure of my surgery is almost guaranteed and it can be different with a more compliant healthy um, healthy patient and so on and so on so i always keep this very clearly in mind when i select my patient i look at the mri retraction fat infiltration tell, telling me something about chronicity of the tear the lifestyle the patient profile in order to make the best choice possible, of course, up to the knowledge that we have today. That's really neat. And um, to close, kind of close the door on rotator cuff, the uh, you shared with us a story about one of one of the two favorite foods that we that we've experienced here in Italy: pizza and pasta. And you told us a story about the the early <laughs> origins of the pasta repair. So, can you can you share that with our listeners? Oh yeah, of course, of course, John. Uh, this is a very well known story, but for the new generation like yeah. you are. But this is a true story. Uh, well, when I was a young boy, like everyone, I was also a young boy, I was dreaming to become a tennis, a tennis champion. Then I played a lot without becoming a champion, but anyways, I did. And I didn't become a champion, but I was, uh, I had a, not torn, but worn rotator cuff. And I started having pain uh, in my right shoulder not only playing tennis and then slowly also while surgery or, 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 or. At that time, I'm speaking about 1990s, um, 
let's say MRIs were not as good as they are today. So I did MRIs, but you know, maybe yes, no. And so I was very frustrated by these symptoms. And, and one day I was visiting with Steve at that time. It was, we were already very good friends and I was even living in, in his home. He was nice enough to host me. And on a Sunday afternoon, there were some friends playing tennis and I could not because I had this pain. And looking at Steve while we were drinking something together, I say, listen, Steve, how many cases on Tuesday? Tuesday was the surgical day, Monday was consultation. And let's assume that he said five. What about six, I said. <laughs> and look at me, why not? So the next day, uh, I, I took my blood test and all the stuff. And the following day, I didn't have any breakfast. And when the last case was almost over, I went to get my interscaline block and I came back as a patient with a little monitor to check what was going on in the shoulder. I was in lateral decubitus. And when we, brackets, we put the scope in, I had a, a partial, significant partial articular side tear of my supraspinatus. And we didn't know what to do. And Steve did an acromioplasty, some debridement, but we didn't know. Again, I'm speaking about 30 years ago almost. And so after a few days, while Steve was driving a car to USD for the GMESH course in San Diego, La Hoya at that time. And during the, the drive, about two and a half hours, and Steve said, well, you need to find a name for this lesion. And at the end of the trip, he's so good with acronyms, the pasta lesion came out. Partial <laughs> articular side supraspinatus tendon avulsion. I am Italian, I had this partial tear, <laughs> and the pasta lesion was defined. And, and after that, it was one of my most common asked uh, presentation in, even in the United States for, pre for, for congresses or so. I did a few studies about this. And pasta lesion origin is directly there from an Italian guy having some pasta and playing tennis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the other things you've talked to us a little bit about has been, um, you know, like many orthopedic surgeons, you've been influential in uh, you know, implant design. And one of the central theses, I think, of your implant design has been about convertibility and use of platform systems. Tell us a little bit about that and the way that's changed your approach. Well, first of all, I want to very much highlight the fact that I am a lucky boy because I was curious, but I was also lucky because I met two excellent examples in my life. One for arthroscopy, Steve Snyder, and for open surgery and shoulder replacement, uh, Mario Rondelli. Mario Rondelli, I already mentioned him. And he, he was, I'm speaking now about, again, 1990s, mid-1990s. He was moving into some ideas with the engineers of an Italian company that um, was very much innovative at that time. One was very little cement. He didn't like cement. So press fit implant. The other one was the modularity of the implant with the principle that whatever you implant, you should be able not only to remove easily, but also to exchange some parts without uh, removing mm -hmm. all the implant itself. So little cement and modularity were the principle of the system that he developed and then was, of course, uh, improved through the years. And then it became probably an inspiring and an inspiring principle that now many other companies are using. This is thanks to Mario, Mario Randelli. Then, of course, 
when he retired they said he passed away two three almost three years ago uh, i tried to keep keep up his good job not my job his job so we also improved other aspects and some with some innovative ideas like for instance the old polyglinosphere and then you can mold in a specific shape you can avoid and avoid uh, empty space for the infection and you can lateralize uh, in a, a selected uh, way not all the same not 10 millimeters in every single case whatever is really needed because we don't know exactly about those numbers anyways we are proceeding in in the same principle now many other companies they have excellent products but the philosophy is not very common to have a system that is modular and is assisting the surgeon and therefore also the patient. One extension of that modularity is certainly you've continued to push uh, metal-backed glenoids or discuss, not push, but discuss well, metal-backed yeah, glenoids. Yeah, Can you yeah. tell us about your evolution there? Yeah, of there? course. I, I'm not pushing you. You, mm -hmm. uh, you corrected yourself. I mean, of course, everybody knows it. The weak link of the total shoulder, anatomical total shoulder, what is? Is the glenoid component. Mm -hmm. Failure of the glenoid is the most common reason for revision. And it is not an ended story, it's like somehow, like the cuff, we don't have a solution. But it is evident that the system that polyethylene, cement and bone is something that is working, but not perfectly. When you have the radiolucent lines and you look at the X-rays in this kind of uh, configuration, and you, you have a lot of radiolucent in the cemented mm. poly. Why? It is cracking in the cement. Because again, the coefficient of elasticity is different, blah, 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 blah. So, again, starting with uh, Mario Randelli, we started thinking the metal back. At that time, metal back was very unpopular because of the bad failures with the Bob Caulfield, excellent surgeon and excellent man. He had failures with his design with Biomet. And also the, the French friends, uh, Gilles and Pascal, they described this uh, metal back and with a lot of failure. But if you look at the design of those, uh, they were flat back and they had these expansion screws that were killing the bone. So probably the design played a role. Mario designed this with a convex, just a big central post and almost no need of screws. There are two screws just for primary stability, but the central post is the most important thing. And I, I did a study in, that I published in 2010 to demonstrate that the base plate itself is solid enough to support eventual conversion mm -hmm. and so on. I, I didn't want to push the metal back overall, but the new design of the, the base plate itself. Because the next step is polyethylene. Polyethylene wear is always there. Uh, whatever you do, polyethylene is not yet the best, the best material for, for this surface mm, of the glenoid. And of course, metal back has also drawbacks, including the, the, the poly where it needs to be controlled and so on and so on. So I was thinking about it, but observing also the, the, the dark side of the moon. Then more recently, again, technology is helping us we are moving, and other, um, there are quite a few designs out there, uh, the, the hybrid one, where you have a central part that is metal and then all poly, that is a little different. And again, we have a design now that is hybrid and convertible, that can be switched from anatomic to reverse. So I think that we are not yet there, but we, we try to improve it.
Now the next case we're going to see is a, a capsulorphian instability repair. One of the things that I think John and I have both seen that's remarkable is that the arthroscopic labor repair, some people will call the arthroscopic bank art, still plays a role in your treatment of instability. And certainly I think in the remainder of Europe, we've seen a huge push towards latter J. You know, you've done a lot of work defining failure rates for that, with, and you work with Porcellini. Certainly you've done work to improve it with your work with posterior interplication sutures. I guess my question is, who for you is the patient that gets an arthroscopic labor repair and doesn't need the latter shay? Well, yeah, yeah. Thank you for the question because, you know, we have waves. There is some fashion also in our surgery. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I was your age, uh, arthroscopic banquet was exploding and every instability was arthroscopic banquet. Wrong. But now, all of a sudden, especially here in Europe, I don't know exactly in the US, in Europe, especially in France, if you do an arthroscopic banquet, you, you are a sort of gangster. It is not true. The truth is in the middle. And again, it is the selection of the patient. Selection of the patient is many aspects to be analyzed. Of course, the anatomy. Bony deficiency is not significant. Bony deficiency is not compatible with a successful um, arthroscopic banquet. Soft tissue management is also important and the healing is important. But still, I love to do arthroscopic bankert with the proper indication. And what is the one? I have no, no bony bankert or bony deficiency, not too many episodes. And luckily now, I didn't do this at the beginning, but after the first episode, I like to fix it because it is much more successful mm. if, you, if you fix it immediately. And again, a good technique because reefing uh, the proper amount of capsule and labrum is important and fixing even the posterior inferior for the posterior bend of the inferior ligament is something important to me. So in order, what is the benefit of arthroscopy? You, if you know it, you can really reconstruct the native anatomy and not only just create a barrier in front. And this is what I like. It is not always possible. You see that in 10 minutes we'll see an arthroscopic banquet, but after that, we move into a letter J. So again, indication and patient selection is the point, but arthroscopic bankrupt is very alive in my hands. Well, I can't tell you how much we appreciate your willingness to share all of your knowledge with us. Um, we, again, you've been an incredibly gracious host and we're very fortunate to have been given the opportunity to learn from you. So thank you again for, for everything you've shared with us. And I'm sure the listeners will very much enjoy all, all of your life hard earned lessons. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, John. And thank you for being here with me. Thank you.